tonight on Arena. The best TV offerings over the Christmas period and the best music and crime fiction books from 2022. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Oh, we're in that week now, aren't we? The one leading up to Christmas, usually spent running around town for last-minute presents, making sure you've got everything in the big shop and making a start on the food preparation. But the payoff will come. Time to relax will come eventually. You'll be able to get into the festive spirit and catch up on some quality Christmas TV. Good opportunity to snooze as well, isn't it, when you're sitting watching the TV? At any rate, uh, ready to crack open the tin of roses and get stuck in is our Chris Wasser and Mary McGill with their recommendations for the best Yuletide telly. Um, I, I'm very interested in your first choice, Chris, because we were talking about Dickens and a Christmas Carol uh, last week on the programme and classic film versions of it. And Jared Colleen was talking to us about where the whole book uh, fits into the to the Dickens oeuvre. But uh, you have uh, are recommending or you have picked out A Christmas Carol for us, a version of A Christmas Carol, which is spelled C-A-R-O-L-E. Yes. Yeah, and it's just called Christmas Carol. Yeah. Um, and to my mind, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of another female performer that has played the Ebenezer mm. Scrooge on stage or screen. Now, no. quick Google tells you that it has been done and actually Christmas Carol by Sky, uh, which is going to be on Sky Max on Christmas Eve, it's not the first to kind of mess around right. with, with the name. Um, but this does employ uh, Saran Jones, who you know from Vigil and from uh, yeah. uh, from Gentleman Jack and, and just a terrific uh, BAFTA uh, award-winning uh, British actress yeah, yeah. whose kind of ballpark is for the last 10 to 15 years has been drama and for this she was giving an interview to the Guardian recently she said that she had just come off the back of Vigil and various other uh, uh, series that were that were, were, were very intense and they were very you know took up an awful lot of energy and she mm. literally said to her agent find me a Christmas film or find me something festive and also help me find something that my son will be able to watch. Uh, so she was drawn to this uh, and, and also to the idea that we're, we're, we, th- th- this version of A Christmas Carol exists in a world where A Christmas Carol exists, if that makes sense. So <laughs> yeah. so we're in modern day the UK, you know, the, the, everybody knows about this story, they know about the numerous adaptations and she's not an Ebenezer Scrooge character, she is Christmas Carol. She actually runs a business called Christmas Carol and they make all sorts of, you know, Christmas party decorations tat and she is a multi-millionaire as a result of building this company. A touch of the Scrooge, yeah. the, the, yeah, the yeah. Bill Murray film then in that, in that he isn't Scrooge per se but yeah. he kind of is, this, he's the television executive who behaves like Scrooge. Oh, Sean, yeah. it comes dangerously yeah. close to just being a knockoff of Scrooge. Um, but yeah, it is It is that ballpark. Mm. She's actually going to sell the company, we're told, for £100 million. And ah, she's got this... And, about you. and she's going to do it in the teeth of Christmas, I presume. She is. She's going to do it on Christmas Eve, uh, which is also the same day that she sacks her assistant. And look, you don't need me to tell you that before she can go out and do this live broadcast where she's announcing to the world that she's going to be a multi-multi-millionaire, she is visited by a sequence of spectral interventions. All right, going to be would it be Christmas Carol if yeah. she didn't have three spectral interventions let's have a listen to one of those she's visited by the ghosts of Christmas past now too interesting who could be the ghosts of Christmas past have a listen excuse me young sir we're looking for the one they call Christmas Carol that's me told you well he thought you were Des O'Connor. Yeah. You're actually Eric Morecambe. Oh, yes. And he's only white. Delighted to meet you, Miss Christmas. But you're both dead. She's quick. I'll give her that. What's happened to me? She hasn't got it yet, has she? No. I don't think she has. We're the ghosts of Christmas past, Sammy. Markham and Wise as the ghosts of Christmas past. That's yep. a that's an inspired idea. That's a clip from Christmas Carol, which is the first TV offering that Chris Wasser's telling us about this evening. Yeah, and you have Markham and Wise there. You have Eric and, and is it the, is it them? I thought was this a technology it, thing? It confused me for the first five seconds. I thought. Well, that's very good. How how did they do that? And 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 by far, this is by far the best special effects in the series. But then, no, you realise it's actually a brilliant tribute act by the name of John T. Stevens and Ian Ashpatel, and they actually have a West End show and have done television work before where they 
do this spot on. Well, they sound exactly they like them. They sound exactly like them. The mannerisms are perfect. And yeah, this series actually employs an idea, which I haven't yet figured out. If I, I haven't yet decided whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, but it's an idea where the ghosts of Christmas past, present and yet to come are played by comedians. And in the case of Morecambe and Wise, you've got the tribute act, but in terms of the present comedian, you've got Joe Brand playing herself. And then in Christmas is Yet to Come, you've got uh, Nish Kumar playing himself. So you've got household names, nice. comedians as the ghosts. Again, can't figure out whether or not that's a good idea or a bad idea. But it is, it, it, it's, one of, it's one of those kind of uh, adaptations of A Christmas Carol that kind of pushes to change things a little bit, right. maybe too much at times. Okay. Um, and Saran Jones, you know, I said the fact that How she How does she a, manage with comedy, yeah? Not great but it's just because it's not a natural setting and I think it's maybe been a while I mean the last thing that forgive me if I've forgotten the comedy that she might have done over the last 10 years but I'm thinking the closest thing that she might have come to this sort of uh, goofy nature would Mm. have been maybe some of the uh, storylines that she would have had in Coronation Street so so she's a much better dramatic actress than she is a comedic actress I think what's wrong here is Great ideas, not enough punchlines. And also, I would have watched half an hour or more of this thing if, if it meant giving the character, you know, more room to breathe. Right. And if it meant, you know, kind so of... What is it? Is it an hour? What is it's, it? It's an hour long, yeah. Right. And I think it would have actually been better if it was an hour okay. and a half. But look, Sean, I should say, it's perfect Christmas wrapping telly or cooking okay. telly or basically doing other Christmassy things while it's on the background telly. And you can probably work out what happens in the end. Even Absolutely. If, even if you have a little snooze as I find myself doing doing lots of Christmas television. Uh, so that's Christmas Eve 8pm on Sky Max Christmas Carol and that's Carol with an E at the end. Motherland is your first pick for us this evening, uh, Mary. Remind us what Motherland's all about first of all. Uh, Motherland, what is it all about, Sean? Well, it's gloriously acerbic, I think is how you would describe Motherland. It's Mm. about a group of mums in suburban London who um, are mothers, but aren't spectacularly enthused by the prospect that that (laughs) presents them with. Um, Central to this is that there's a gang of of women and and one man involved, but the central character Mm. is the ever stressed, brilliantly portrayed by Anna Maxwell, Julia. And uh, Julia this Christmas has an awful lot on her on our plate. This Christmas, we are, this is the second um, Motherland Christmas special that we're getting. Yeah. It's entitled Last Christmas. Now, people are reading a lot into that title, so I'm going to be very careful what I say around it, not to give too much away. Okay. But as ever, Julia is frazzled. Um, she has her in-laws staying with her. She also has her mother living with her long term. Her forever absent, even when he's present, husband, Paul, um, played by Oliver Chris, is very engaged with the VR set that he bought for the children. Um, but, you know, is, oh, is yeah. using absolutely and we have Kevin um, played by Paul Reedy who is a central member to, to the group but he's going through a really tough time yeah this is um, it, Kevin is her ex isn't he yeah is he your ex? No, no, Kevin. No, no, Kevin is her friend, oh, pal, uh, part of the pal. friend group. Sorry, pal, exactly. But he is in the process of separating oh, from right. his wife. Uh, so um, he Kevin needs a, is, he needs an invite for Christmas eventually. Yes, which he manages to wrangle, um, <laughs> and he comes over, and he's got he is going to take over Christmas dinner, and um, which right. you know Julia is very very happy about. But as ever. Sean, things do not go of according to plan. Well, let's, let's, let's <laughs> listen to a little clip featuring that moment when Julia decides to take pity on, on Kevin uh, and, and give, him a, give him a Christmas dinner to come to. No, no, I've got everything I want. Christmas breakfast with my girls. I've got to make sure I get going by the time Jill wakes up. And then it's back to the hotel for turkey crisps from the vending machine. We're still at the abyss. It's, it's the ibis. That's very funny, Liz. I have to remember to tell the other divorced dads. They'll hoot at that. Maybe not Oliver. He's in a very dark place. Jesus Christ. No, it's all right. He's on the ground floor. He took away his belt. Right, that's it, Kevin. You're coming to me, love. No, no, I don't want to encroach. What to encroach after my arsehole? That mother and that pair of bellends that birthed my husband. No, more than Marion. Elizabeth and Jeff. Oh, I love them. And Marion. Thank you. Thank you, Julia. You sure? You sure? I, I could bring some... I could, I could cook. Yes, please, please. <laughs> I think they both kind of <laughs> walked each other into that particular one. Anna Maxwell Martin as Julia and Paul Reedy as Kevin in, in a clip there from Motherland. Joanna Lumley is, is present here as well mm. as the, she's the mother, isn't she? 
She is. And I have to say, Sean, that was a great clip because I think it captures exactly what Motherland is all about. Mm. And I think, you know, it really gets to the heart of, of the yeah. great writer um, that Sharon Horgan is. And it's a hallmark of so much of her work as well. You, you think of the likes of Catastrophe, this amazing ability to be completely yeah. sharp one moment, but very, very tender the next. And yes, Joanna Lumley plays uh, Felicity, an absolutely glacial mother of one of the characters, the very snobby Amanda. And they end up having what I will say is quite a difficult Christmas together. But there is a lovely contrast between uh, Amanda and her close yeah. friend played by Philippa D- or Anne played by Philippa Dunn, um, who is the, the Irish uh, the Irish pal. And um, Anne has 29 or is it 32 cousins coming over for Christmas. Yeah. So it's all very chill and, and celebratory for Anne. Not so much for poor Amanda. And, but, and uh, Sharon but, but Horgan has, you know, Christmas is perfect for the whole idea of, you know, <laughs> both the awful uh, the, the really mm. difficult and the really cosy kind of lump in your throat type of thing and Sharon Horgan is made for that kind of wry observations and equally she can get the warm fuzzy stuff as well Yes absolutely and I think this is a, this is an uh, you know you're talking 30 minutes here fantastic for frazzled people who want to sit yeah. down with a glass of wine and enjoy some adult humour I would also say to anyone who hasn't watched Motherland you know, they're about 20-30 minutes long if you can, catch up over Christmas. Yeah. It's one of the best comedies out there at the moment. It's really worthy of your time. All right. and, where, and you will laugh and you might cry. Where is it showing? Oh, BBC One, uh, 23rd of December at 9.30pm is the, the, yeah. the Motherland special. And you can probably watch it even if you don't know the series. You probably cop on fairly quickly who's who, uh, I think, probably yes. on the basis of what you've told us there. Let's move on then to Treason, Chris. This is a new Netflix series called Treason starring Kieran Hines and Charlie Cox. Now, we can't review this. No. We're not allowed to review it. Not allowed. So we're previewing it. We can only give it a kind of a sense of what it's about rather than say whether it's any good or not. Yeah, that's it. Um, we can say though that it reunites Charlie Cox and Carol yeah. Hines because they uh, viewers will have seen them on the screen in Kin, uh, yes. or Cheese Kin last year. Um, but it is an espionage uh, thriller drama. It is from Mark Charman who actually uh, was nominated for an Oscar for his work on the screenplay with Joel and Ethan Coen with, uh, on Bridge of Spies uh, directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, yeah, it's in the same ballpark. You have uh, Charlie Cox who people will know not just from Kim but from playing Daredevil a role he's had on and off since 2015 very popular performer so much so that you know there were petitions to get him playing Daredevil again which actually worked out Um, but he's playing uh, the kind of second in command at MI6 here and Kieran Hines is the uh, you know he's the chief at MI6 and you know we're going to we're going to talk around it but what we can say is that something happens to the chief that he is poisoned by a Russian spy and that Russian spy's name is Kara she's played by Olga Kurylenko who is actually in the Bond films which are referenced here Um, and and it then falls to Adam Lawrence, who, you know, Kieran Hines Martin, Sir Martin, has been yeah. training for years to take his place. It falls to him to be the acting chief and to find out how how and why their boss was poisoned. Who yeah. is this Russian spy? And then, of course, we'll learn if, if you've ever read or seen any Bond or Le Carre or any sort of spy thriller, you'll know that the person who ends up in the job that their boss previously had usually has some sort of dark past okay. that's going to make things very tricky. Well, here's Adam Lawrence, Charlie Cox. To, uh, being co- he's called the Foreign Secretary here, Alex Kingston to explain that um, something has happened to the boss. Not a congratulations call I was expecting, I'll be honest. Uh, Minister? The leadership. Sorry, isn't that why you're calling? Uh, Sir Martin Angelis was admitted to Bart's ten minutes ago. He suffered a cardiac arrest while he was dining in his club. He is unconscious. He's being kept in isolation. Isolation? It's a precaution. We think he may have been poisoned. Oh, God. Are you ready to assume his duties as chief? Yes, Mum. Ever met the PM? Once. As soon as you've been briefed by the police, you bring us both up to speed, all right? Understood. Another attack may be imminent. If an attempt was made to kill the chief of MI6, we need to raise the threat level. You're going to have some big calls to make. Can you handle it? Yes, Mum. Wonder was there anybody expecting one of those calls in <laughs> Ireland over the past week? <laughs> they didn't get it clearly. Um, uh, and, and Alex Kingston, a little disappointed by, as Foreign Secretary, a little disappointed by the call that she was expecting was about something else. I know you can't tell us whether, no. whether it's any good or not, Chris. Uh, but on the basis of the premise and on the cast, would you be saying have a give it a go? Yeah, it's a cracking premise. Charlie Cox has been brilliant in everything from Boardwalk Empire up until Daredevil, which I mentioned. Kieran Hines mm. is always a pleasure. Uh, yeah, it is something that I'll be 
be looking forward to. It's a, it actually sounds exactly like the sort of thing that you usually see on Sunday nights on BBC in January or right. February. And it's just a five-part series and it's also coming to Netflix on Stephen's Day. So it's probably the best time to sit down and watch five hours of spy stuff on the telly. Five hours so yeah. you, you can gorge on it. Oh, you can. On the 26th, yeah. <laughs> if you're not gorging on the turkey at the yeah. same time. You can do both maybe at the same time. Okay, let us move on. So it's in Stephen's Day available on Netflix Treason. Mary, um, Count Magnus, what are we talking about here? Yeah, well, we're talking about the latest instalment of um, BBC's long-running A Ghost Story for Christmas strand. Mm. So they take um, a scare at Christmas as seriously as they take their Christmas cheer over at the BBC. And this latest instalment, we're, we're going to Sweden, the year is 1863. Um, it's a place where few Englishmen dare to go. The exception in this case is the very inquisitive Mr. Raxall, played by Jason Watkins, who becomes very interested in the archives of a noble family on his visit. Now, the more he gets into these archives, the more he becomes fixated on the fearsome Count Magnus, who was a, a tyrannical ruler who, be, mm. who apparently dabbled in alchemy, alchemy. And he once made a journey to the Holy Land and came back with something, we'll say, uh, slightly dark, perhaps demonic. Nobody is okay. quite sure. Count, Madden, Count Magnus now lies um, in a tomb that is locked. Um, but when Mr. Roxall goes looking, those locks appear to be displaced. And from there, things take a progressively um, right. dark, scarier darker turn. And darker yes. Term. Okay, dark let's have a term, listen to yes. a clip featuring the aforementioned Mr. Raxel played by Jason Watkins. And he's getting a warning here about, you know, don't be rocking the boat. Leave well enough alone. He's having dinner with his host, Mayanna Burring, who plays the character of, I love this, Frocken de la Gardie. Mm. <laughs> You'd watch it for the name alone, <laughs> wouldn't you? Um, here we go. We have so few visitors here in Vesterjotland. Since my husband passed away, the house has been so very silent. So sad. You are indeed most welcome. And it is fascinating, is it not, to have one's family history investigated? Well, I, I, I very much hope so. So long as you do not, um, oh, you say, man, um, disturb any skeleton. What's she sipping? What's she sipping there, Mary, in in the midst of that clip? Well, I have a picture of her here in front of me and she looks frightening, I have to say, with a candlestick in her hand. Well, Sean, you, you just wouldn't know because this is a short story by M. Moore James who's celebrated right. as the master of, of you know, the scary dark. short stories. The dark and the, the chain rattling type stuff. So, you know, nothing is as what it seems in this story. And yeah. I have to say, it's um, produced by Mark Gatlas, who has written written previously for Dracula, Sherlock, Doctor Who. So that will tell you the calibre of the storytelling yeah. here. And Mayanna Burring is, is the character we heard there playing the wonderfully named Frock and Delegardi. What you were going to say, what, uh, Mary, sorry? I'm saying we're in a safe pair of hands here when it comes to yeah. storytelling. And for a lot of people, there's a real kind of, you know, it's this funny time of year, Sean. You know, after Halloween, we're told that, the, the, the you know, the line between the spirit world and the living world is very yeah, thin. And perhaps it's, you know, it's just a great time for a good old ghost story. Well, Christmas Carol. <laughs> what Indeed, is it other than right a ghost there. story? Right, a, exactly. a ghost story for Christmas, BBC Two. Count Magnus, the name of this year's offering, 10 p.m., on Friday the 23rd of December is when you will get that. Um, I hit Susie 2 and that's T-O-O but is it kind of I hit Susie T-W-O as well? Is that what we're talking oh, that, about that, here Chris? That, that's it yeah yeah luckily the, the, the humour is a lot cleverer in that, than that title in the actual oh, I show. I thought that was um, hilarious. <laughs> um, but I didn't think there was actually going to be a second run of this right. and Lucy Preble the creator and writer and uh, Billy Piper who created it and stars mm-hmm. in it uh, with Lucy they had said as well that they kind of thought that it was a one and done with the last with the last season and for some context the first season of I Hate Susie which was on two years ago uh, yeah, told the story of a former teen pop star uh, turned uh, popular sci-fi actress um, and, and in that regard it's a little bit semi-autobiographical for Billy Piper um, but where it stops being semi-autobiographical is that the character Susie Pickles has her phone hacked and there are compromising uh, photographs on that phone which are then leaked to the press and it sort of just destroys her life it destroys her career um, you know everyone realises in the public and you know also in, in Susie's personal life that you know she's been cheating on her husband she does everything she can to keep her young son out of the entire 
Empire ordeal. It affects her career because she had a, a, a deal lined up with Disney. It just destroys everything for her when it was all right. going so well. And when we first, when we last saw her, we saw that the marriage was in tatters, that her friendship with her agent uh, was completely destroyed. She was getting a divorce and for a brief moment was contemplating suicide after she realized that she was pregnant. In this run, we pick up six months later. And is it a run or is it a Christmas special? Is this this a- is an anti-Christmas Christmas special is what they're calling <laughs> right. it. But what it really okay. is, is a bit of an epilogue and it's a trilogy of uh, installments that kind of pick up six months later. And I'm glad that Preble and Piper came back to it because they said they were a little yeah. bit anxious and they didn't know if there was a good enough story there. There is. And the story so, is all about Susie's comeback and that, you know, six months after we last saw her, she's actually terminated so, her pregnancy. She has signed up because of her new agent has convinced her that you need to make a few quid. She signed up for a Strictly-esque sort of show called Dance Crazy and she's going to convince the public, okay. you don't want to hear me singing anymore. You don't want to see me acting. I'm going to try dancing. You do, you do want to see me dancing. Okay, let's have a listen to a clip of uh, Susie played by Billy Piper. She's just come off stage here to be briefed by her PR guy, Holland Fitzpatrick, played by Omari Douglas. Little bit of language in the midst of this clip. Are we good? Yes. Right, okay. Breathe. The thing is, if he just tells the story from his point of view, yeah. which he's done, I discovered these photos of my wife with another man at the same time as everyone else, and then she left me and our son six months ago. When you just tell the story with the facts, he can seem like, um, he gives good reasonable. This is not fucking reasonable. This is punishment for doing the show. Alright, Susie. Jealous. Alright, Kate, you're doing really well. Such a fucker! It's alright. You're the one that's reasonable, Susie. You are. It's a question, not for now, but it's a question of how to respond. What? Respond like what? Well, we think just a short, heartfelt apology. What what am I apologising for? Nothing specific, just generally in the world we don't always behave in the way that we would like. Right, so I just apologise for everything. Or is it is it silence? Is is it dignity? (laughs) Thank you. I see what you mean about the humour being a little bit more um, complex than yes, I, I yep. suggested with the title, Chris. It, that sounds like a lot of fun. It's fantastic. Yep. It is anxiety-inducing okay. television as the last one was, but I can't think of a better show that brilliantly captures like the everyday horror and also okay. particularly for female p- performers of you know celebrity and also in trying to make a comeback when a public knows so much about you and when they've actually decided that you might be a villain. And again, Lucy Preble, who works on the succession writing team, just knocks it out of the park okay. here again. And Billy Piper is just extraordinary. Dreaming from Christmas Eve is from, it? Uh, no, oh, from the December 20th it'll uh, be on uh, Sky and it'll be on streaming service now but it will be on Sky Atlantic Sky Atlantic okay um, <laughs> do you know where we're going next? We're walking in the air. Now that either makes you go all <laughs> ghost, goose bumpy and oh yes or it means oh no not that again but <laughs> you're not actually going to I, I, there's no reason to not watch The Snowman let no. me be honest with you I watched it uh, the other night in fact in the National Concert Hall it was great fun um, so you're not telling us though Mary McGill to watch The Snowman you're telling us to watch something else yes I'm connected with to The watch- Snowman Indeed, and it almost it seems a shame to turn down the music. But I The know. Snowman, the film that changed Christmas, it's streaming on all four for the next couple of weeks. 2022 is a huge year for Channel 4. It's the 40th anniversary of the station. It also marks 40 years since Channel 4 first broadcast mm. um, their adaptation of Raymond Briggs's beautiful um, book at the time. And obviously Raymond Briggs also passed away earlier on this year. Yeah. So it kind of feels particularly poignant um, this Christmas. When you look at Christmas classics, I think it's always really interesting to think about what makes a classic. Why do certain films, certain poems, certain scary stories mm. become so associated with Christmas? And this documentary does a really good job of drilling down into what it is that yeah. makes the snowman so special and so kind of attached. I think particularly for the generation of millennials that grew up with it. But now in increasingly for their kids as well. It's become such a big part yeah. of Christmas. Does it does it talk or does it address in any way the melting of the snowman, which is always the hard moment in, <laughs> in, in, the, in the film, isn't it? It does. But, but you, you have to what? have it there. You can't ignore you do. it. Absolutely. And I think it says a lot about what we assume children are able for and what they're not able for emotionally when it comes to storytelling. But a really interesting point on that, Sean, and and this is mentioned um, in in the documentary. I hadn't heard of this before. The snowman was originally meant to be shown alongside E.T. in theatres. But Steven Spielberg saw the snowman and said, no, they're too similar. 
And, you know, it's the, the, you get these lovely moments peppered throughout the documentary where you're like, oh, wow, imagine. But if you think about the snowman, you think about E.T. and themes of loss yeah. and so on, there's a lot going on there. And uh -huh. so we hear from Howard Blake, who wrote that incredible score that you were just playing. Part of it was conjured up on a beach in Norfolk yeah. during the summer. Who could imagine yeah. it? We hear from the animators, the commissioners, um, and also ah, a few right. talking heads as well, who do a great job of capturing its magic. So well, there you go. The, the Raymond Briggs, the snowman himself, will not be present. And I suppose that fits in in some ways with the, the whole mm. way the film is handled, isn't it? Listen, thanks to both of you for sharing your thoughts with us on upcoming Christmas TV. Uh, happy Christmas to both of you. Hope you have a great time snoozing, eating, whatever you're doing in front of, in front <laughs> of the yourself. telly. And you, happy uh, Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk to you in the new year. Now, if you're not sitting in front of the telly with some of the recommendations that Mary McGill and Chris Washer have just given to us, you may be saying, do you know what? I want a little break from that now. What more enjoyable thing is there to do than curling up with a gripping crime thriller? We can all enjoy a break over the holidays. It's nice to know that our literary sleuths are up to their sometimes pince-nez eyes in murder and mayhem. <laughs> Among the novels to enthrall us, uh, this year is a young man found dead in a notorious cruising area, a, ch a chef patriarch found frozen to death in his, in his meat freezer, and a young girl who goes missing after a party. Pa Humbug, Jacqueline <laughs> Burke has been reading those and more and joins me now. I suppose you'll be saying, never mind your ghost stories at Christmas. It's crime fiction that you want to be asked. Yeah, well, I'll be honest with you. My, my, my ideal Christmas always involves a couch and a burning fire and a pile of books. Does it ever work out like that? <laughs> no, it does not. But we'll crack on. OK. Nicola White's novel, The Burning Boys, set in Dublin in the mid-1980s. Um, this is a time before uh, homosexuality was... Uh, decriminalised. Yeah, and, and this is the third in a trilogy from Nicola White, all three of which have been based or rooted in real crimes that happened in Ireland in the 1980s. Um, the Rosary Garden was a prize winner uh, when it was published in 2013 and The Famished Heart was the second novel. Uh, as, as you suggested in the intro, <clears throat> excuse me, a body is discovered in the Phoenix Park near an, an area that was notorious at the time for being mm. a cruising spot in the quote-unquote twilight world of the homosexual. Um, <clears throat> not necessarily a crime to get the murder squad's pulses racing at the time and then they discovered that the, 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 the victim of the crime is in fact a guard himself. So the Vincent Swan and Gina Considine are the two series detectives yeah. who's appeared in this novel. Um, Gina Considine, readers will already know, is gay herself, of course, given the world that she lives in. She hasn't told anyone, let alone uh, Vincent Swan, who's probably her closest uh, friend. So that provides the backdrop, the, the kind of emotional backdrop to what's a really terrific thriller. This sounds like something that should be on the telly as well. Yeah, no, I, they really should be adapted. I mean, look, she, she tells a brilliant story, Nicola White, but what she does very, very well is the kind of hinterland, the the, the, yeah. the culture and and and, and mm. that kind of grey drab world that we perceive in our minds at least when we think yeah, of Dublin I'm, in the I'm, 1980s. I'm casting it as I'm, as I'm listening to you describe <laughs> it there and yeah, well, I have to think more about that. The Burning Boy, whoever, is the novel that you're suggesting. Nicola Indeed. White, um, uh, 1986 <coughs> setting and some beautiful social commentary ah, in yeah, the midst no, she's, of all she's of that uh, as well. The Family Chow, is that how I would say it brings us to the Asian community in Lake Heaven, Wisconsin? Um, this is the meat freezer and the body in the meat freezer that I alluded to earlier yes, indeed. on. Yes, Shouldn't be laughing, really, should it? Leo, big chow. Um, he is the patriarch of a uh, of an immigrant family, and he he has three sons, uh, Dagau, um, sorry, Ming I, and James. Yes, thank you very there much. There you go. And they <laughs> are Donald all. Thought I read it all. Eh? <laughs> they are all kind of jostling for position and power and so forth in in the in the family hierarchy. So you know, obviously, we've named the three names. Mm. These are probably the three suspects for for who killed the father. Um, Again, like Nicola White's novel, very good plot, twisting and turning. We expect that as the bare minimum we expect from our crime novels. What this is very good at, like Nicola White, is it, it investigates identity and the social role, both real and perceived, uh, of the immigrant and racism, both covert and overt. Yeah, and also, and you're giving it a real literary kind of quality well, here as I, well. You're I'm, making comparisons. I'm not. It's Samantha Chang, you know, wrote oh, she, a literary novel that, you know, and, and, you know, publishers are always looking for what's called mm. the crossover novels. Uh, 
Sean, and, and, and this is a classic example of it. There is an awful lot ticking away under the surface of the this Brothers novel. Karamazov, would you? Well, would that's you? that's how it's built. That's yeah. not necessarily how I would read it. But let me put this: this book certainly is a crime novel with plenty of literary heft. Okay, if that sounds okay. Like a you're, you're not prepared to go quite as far as as <laughs> as, as the Russian uh, counterpart. You're, you're not going there just yet. Okay, The Empty Room by Brian McGilloway. Uh, oh, now this one again. He he does this so well, but this is the the, the every parent's nightmare, isn't every it? The child parents doesn't come home. Nightmare, absolutely. Dora Condren. Now Brian is 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 a terrific writer of police procedurals. That's what mm. he's made his career on. And this is kind of a standalone. Uh, the main character is Dora Condren, who, as you say, she she's the, the mother of a seventeen year old teen, teenager. Goes out to a party one night and doesn't come home. That everyday nightmare. Now, the problem is the, the, the police are very, you know, they're coolly efficient and so forth. They're very yeah. good at their jobs. The neighbours rally round and so forth. <clears throat> Everybody seems to be doing the right things. But Ellie, her daughter, doesn't come home. And again, we're, we're, we're looking for novels here. We're talking about kind of the best novels of yes. the year. Sean, so what Brian McGilloway does very well here is he he, he sheds a light on, on Ellie's, the missing girl's life, and particularly this project she's been working on, which she's an art student, she's been working on, uh, you know, The Lady of Shalott and Elpis by Jenny Savile. And, and basically these are all women, uh, quote-unquote tragic women. And, and of course, this, again, everyday nightmare. Is Ellie going to become another one of these mm. tragic women? Not not if Dora has anything to do about it and, and it's a wonderful story about what one woman can achieve once she sets her mind you know against society Complicit is the title of your next um, uh, recommendation Declan Winnie M. Lee looks at the dark side of the film industry um, I, I, are we in the kind of area that I suppose this 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 industry has has been uh, kind of been dealing with quite heavily in recent times in You're, terms of yeah. sexploitation and Hit, sexual the harassment nail on, on the head there there's very much a me too yeah. uh, aspect to this novel Sean uh, Sandra Lai is the, is the main character and she grew up again a, a daughter of of uh, Hong Kong immigrants her big ambition was to make it in Hollywood as a producer she doesn't mm. want to be in front of the camera gets to Hollywood in a very minor role and is suddenly exposed to the horror of a world in which power money predatory men these things are kind of you know they, they, they go hand in hand and as the title suggests and this is where it becomes a very interesting novel mm. is the extent to which Sandra herself the narrator considers herself complicit in the crimes that she doesn't necessarily see straight on but there are these things that she sees out of the corner of her eye she hears behind closed doors and, and it's that kind of narrative that explores the extent to which Sandra and by yeah. extension us the readers and society at large are complicit in these crimes that are you know pretty much committed in 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 in, in public view oh uh, yeah I um I spoke about the family chow earlier on I think isn't it three brothers that I gave to you in the case of Dagao Ming and James uh, uh, what are the relationships here in the eye of the beholder by Mar- Margie or Mar yeah she'd be Margie uh, Orford wouldn't she Cora Freya and Angela well, Cora and Freya are our mother and daughter in this in this novel. Uh, Cora is a South African artist mm. who has had to leave South Africa. Her her artistic work is very controversial. It's very provocative. She's very much a feminist artist, and, and South Africa, as far as she's yeah. concerned, isn't isn't broad minded enough to to hold her. Now she has developed a relationship with the art dealer Yves Fournier, and and as the novel begins, she's escaping from Fournier's cabin in in Canada, and and we're led to believe as the readers that she has done him a serious damage um, and as, as events unfold we believe well he deserved that because he is again another predatorial man who tends to prey on vulnerable women it's again uh, Margie Orford is a terrific writer she's a series of, of uh, novels mm. featuring Claire Hart which are set in South Africa very hard hitting and very much get under the skin of what's society particularly in its relationship to women and women in public so the role that Cora Berger plays as as an artist representing broken and damaged women and the role that she plays in relation to a more private uh, relationship with this predatorial art dealer, that's what provides the core of the novel. Angel Lamar, who is a, a volunteer wolf watcher, she's a kind of observer on the sidelines. What did she see? Mm. Can she trust what she saw, etc.? But the main story is Cora Berger's and, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful piece. Richard Osman, I mean, there was a time when you just you saw him uh, as as the kind of the TV presenter and the the quiz program that he was deeply involved in. But really, 
I don't know if, if he would now say <laughs> that this is his second career or his main career. I the, the, would, the, I would argue he did. And look, you're, you're dead right. I mean, to be honest, this is his third novel. I kind of turned a blind eye to the first two simply because I mm. thought he was another celebrity who yeah. may or may not be writing the books himself, Sean, to yeah. be perfectly frank. I took a plunge on this one. A bit of bitterness in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we see a lot of it. But I have to say, mea culpa, Richard Osmond is the real he's deal. He's the real deal. He, yeah. He's writing the, the Thursday Club is what they're called and they're a group yeah. of retirees. Uh, we have an ex-psychiatrist, <clears throat> an ex, a former spy, a veteran rabble-rouser um, uh, and they come together every Thursday and they're investigating cold cases because effectively they've nothing pe- to be better to do with their time. Um, and and it's, it's all kind of starts out mm. as a kind of a cosy crime but it's very slyly done very funny we no surprise there Richard Osmond is is a comedian uh, Richard Osmond excuse me is a comedian um and and it all gets a bit anarchic and and and, and absurd yeah. at times you know the whole in a TV celebrity there's a former KGB colonel involved and a psychopathic viking bibliophile who who specializes in cryptocurrency I'm a I'm a convert straight away to the Richard Osmond books I will be going back to read the first two and if anybody's out there wondering oh, it's another celebrity no it Richard, is. Richard it is. He is the real deal, is, is what you're saying, yeah. Declan. Okay. I'll give you, um, after, well, we certainly get to this one. Disorientation by Elaine Shea Chow. Um, great co- interview with her earlier in the year. As much an exploration of people's attitude to Asians as anything else. That's what that, she's well, it, here, it's it? a multi layered novel, as I'm sure you found out in the interview, mm. Sean. It's, it's a wonderful piece. It's. It, so uh, Elaine Chow is herself a Taiwanese-American author. This is her debut novel, by the way. The novel is narrated by Ingrid Yang, who is also a ta- ta- Taiwanese-American mm. graduate student at Barnes University. And she's working on her a thesis on the revered Chinese-American poet Zhao Wen Chow. And she discovers this shocking... This happens very early in the novel, that the poet is not the great Chinese-American poet. He was, in fact, a white man dressed up in quote-unquote yellow face and he has hoodwinked the American public and so yeah. forth. There are so many novels, layers to this novel. and It's it's genuinely funny. She's a literary detective. She's following these clues and so forth. Absolutely savage in her takedown of pretentious mm. academia and so forth. If you ask me to read one of these novels that we've talked about here today, start again tomorrow morning, Disorientation um, would be the one okay, I'd choose. Fair enough. That's a high recommendation indeed. Uh, another interview I really enjoyed and I really enjoyed it because uh, this is Adrian McKinty I'm talking about here and his book The Island and I think he may just be in we're doing a best of books roundup of the best uh, author interviews of the year I think he might just be part of that <laughs> but anyway um, he uh, he when I started out I said this story of yours is based on a real life event Adrian and he proceeded to tell me about the real life event which is absolutely frightening and is the basically it's the premise of the of Apparently the book so, yeah. and I mean I think he spoke for about four or five minutes and I just sat, sat here with my jaw down on my chest <laughs> listening to the, what had happened We're lucky to still have him by the, by the sounds of things he, he says in the acknowledgements of this book it was a a deliverance moment in real life mm. um, and, and that's as you say it's the premise of the novel we have two American tourists Heather and Tom and Tom's teenage kids they're on holiday uh, in Australia they take a ferry to a little island as was Adrian and coast, his family as was Adrian and his family uh, and and what happens is Tom's erratic driving causes a fatal accident, accident which almost happens uh, to Adrian McKinty himself in real life. Uh, and, and then he compounds the error by trying to escape the island. And the family that have lived there for generations and may or may not be a little bit in, inbred and so forth, they find out and they start hunting down the tourists. Yeah, with that's when the fiction kicks in. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And Adrian's last book, The Chain, was hugely successful, yeah. kind of high concept. I didn't really plug into the idea of it, but I think he's really back on form with this yeah. because great writer on a line-by-line basis uh, and, and he gets to unpack a lot of kind of... Th- th- there's, a, there's a big element of colonial uh, mindset and so forth uh, that that starts to come out as the as the novel evolves. So yeah, All terrific right. piece. Yeah, terrific piece published by Orion, the Island, by Adrian McKenty. Uh, happy Christmas to you as well, Declan. Enjoy your crime <laughs> crime re- reading over the holiday period. Maybe you will get the pile of books, the fire, and the sofa. We you never can know. Only hope, sure. You live in hope. All the best. Have a great Christmas, Declan. Thanks. 
Writing about music is about like dancing about architecture. Quote variously attributed to Frank Zappa, Elvis Costello and others. Whatever the origin of the quote, it's generally aimed at music critics. One of them is sitting in front of me right now. But this time, Eamon Sweeney is donning the critics hat, not in relation to music directly, but music books and the best music books uh, in Eamon's mind of 2022. I suppose the Bono and Surrender was definitely the most high profile. There's no, oh, question, yeah. there's no question about that one. You couldn't avoid it. I was actually thought maybe one morning I wake up and it'd be there on my phone. But I think you probably tried that stunt before with an album. Yeah. It kind of backfired. Um, but yeah, bon, Bono, Bono's Surrender continues to be a huge seller. Like I've, I was in a bookshop today and I mm. saw at least two people buying it. I'd say it'd be in a lot, a lot of Christmas stockings for sure. Okay, so would you say there's been a boom in recent years in terms of music books? Yes. Um, the reason uh, being... There, uh, go, thank you for uh, okay. preempting my why. <laughs> I think it's been, Sean, it's been gathering steam for a number of years. I think there's a few titles about a decade ago that really mm. stood out. Uh, one being Life by Keith Richards. And uh, then Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run in 2016. He addressed depression. And it was a great example of the music biog or the autobiog getting out of away from the the flabby mm. kind of confessional oh look name dropping yeah. or all the crazy stuff that's happened to me and all the rock and roll you know stories and war stories that characterized the Keith Richards book then uh around that time close 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 music 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 boys 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 what a brilliant title Viv Al- Albertine yeah, of the Smiths Bestseller. Stunning book. Stunning, stunning book. book. Yeah. And it really kind of came out of nowhere. And it also made publishers wake up to the fact of you don't have to be Keith Richards or Bruce Springsteen or indeed Bono to publish a successful music book. But if you've got you, a story to tell, yeah. it could be told. But it's the way the story is told in that book is as, yeah, as much as anything else, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. I think I feel like London's almost like a character in that book. It's so evocative. Punk rock background, this, the growing pains of a young girl. See, this is it. It, it goes, away, gets away from music, and the interesting stuff is really about the life stuff. Yeah, and that trend I think is reflected in some of the books that have that have chosen about this year. But there's also another interesting dynamic, Sean, of a few of these books are by journalists and approaching their subject matter in a very highly original and innovative, inventive, yeah, smart way. Doing more than just. Giving us the facts, Absolutely. as it were. There's, there's, there's more involved in it. Okay, let's have a look at... You've given us a top five. And we, we'll we start at number five, which means we have to keep going till we get to number one. So I'm sure. Better, better behave ourselves. Okay. The, <laughs> the Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives by Ju, Jude Rogers. Even the title of that kind yes. of tells us where she's going Absolutely. with it, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it's a really good example of what I was just uh, talking about there. An excellent example of just... Mm-hmm doing something mm. original rather than a flabby memoir. Now, Jude, give a bit of her background. Uh, for years, reader, uh, listeners might be familiar with her. She's written for The Guardian, The Quietest. Um, before she did that, she published a thing called Smoke a London Peculiar that I used to pick up on almost every trip to London. That was amazing. And in this, she goes deep. Her hook is... Uh, a selection of about a dozen songs and where they occur at various stages of her life there would be the, the, the death of her father at a very young mm-hmm. age to going on to her own personal journey to parenthood and so on but and this is where Rogers is really really uh, original she weaves in contributions from music psychologists about why music has this power to shape our lives yeah, yeah. and it really is yeah, a bit of science done. as well as everything else in there. Let's uh, listen to a clip from the, the audiobook of The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. And it's, it's her that's reading it. Um, and she's talking in and around the death of her father in this clip. Dad went under the anaesthetic on the morning of the 11th January 1984. Blood stopped travelling to his brain and it never travelled again. When I go back to the morning I was lost with him, to those cow-like lashes the porch, the tiles, the hibernating flowers. The thing that stands out more than anything is his request to know something about a song. Since I've become older than my father ever was in the last ten years, I've started to ask myself why this detail arrives first before everything. Why did the identification of a set of verses and choruses matter so much? Why has it carried such a weight in my mind? I used to think I was just being nostalgic for a sweet, geeky connection between father and daughter. 
dad was trusting me to find out a statistic, like a football score perhaps. But over time, I realised there was something deeper going on. Dad and I weren't rooting for players to score goals. We were rooting for players who had come together in the studio in the service of a song, something stitched together from wisps of melodies, harmonies and rhythms, something that also, enchantingly, stitched us together. We were rooting for the two of us to be people for whom songs were extensions of their ordinary lives. That's brilliant writing about about music and the way she, you know, that's Jude Rogers reading from her book The Sound of Being Human, How Music Shapes Our Lives. It's the way she kind of links it in then and you can see that she's going down, she's going to go kind of a scientific route with it mm-hmm. and give us Absolutely. the psychology behind it as well. Absolutely. All right, that's number five, White Rabbit Books, the, the publishers there. Spaceships Over Glasgow. Yes. That's what we have next. Mogwai, Mayhem and Misspent Youth. Stuart Braithwaite, great <laughs> subtitle. It is, and it hits the nail on the head, but he goes deeper than that. Now, okay, I will I will admit my bias. Mogwai are one of my favourite bands of all time. Mm. Uh, there's no escaping that fact. This is the only probably more conventional music. Also be arguing my top five. But, and this is where it gets interesting, Stuart does uh, kind of two or three things very, very effectively. Number one, he nails the impact of music, indeed how it shapes our lives, to continue Mm -hmm. what we're talking about there with Jude Rogers' book, about going to see The Cure as a teenager and seeing Nirvana, Iggy Pop, The Jesus and Mary Chain. Secondly, um, the Barlands Ballroom in Glasgow. He captures perfectly how important a music venue can be to culture to the fabric of a city, to fostering a scene. And I think this is a very, very important thing to consider in this day and age when we're seeing venues close all over the world. Indeed, in this country, being no exception. And thirdly, now, yes, there is the mayhem, there is the misbuilt youth, there is a bit of hedonistic behaviour, shall we say. But I don't want to give give any, any spoilers away about the ending. What I find so powerful about it is the theme of family, of gratitude, of achieving something on your own terms with your friends. Yeah. I'm not giving anything away to say what his father's job was, am I? Uh, telescope maker. <laughs> no, the son of Scotland's leading telescope maker. Yes. So clearly, well, and, of course, more than uh, it's he, just a, what a wonderful thing to have in your background. Yeah, he left the Labour Party and joined the yeah. Scottish National Party and so on. So, yeah. Okay, so that's um, Spaceships Over Glasgow, Stuart Braithwaite, and that published by Satanta Books. Let's move on to Bodies, Life and Death in Music in Winwood. This sounds terribly serious. It is serious, and this is probably the darkest read Mm. of any of my top five. Ian Wynn Winwood would come from uh, his kind of... Currently, he writes for the Daily Telegraph, but his background would have been writing for Kerrang. And, you know, I think the music press, certainly, I'd be more from what Nicky Wire from the Manic Street Preachers would say, a child of the Melody, uh, Melody Maker and the NME. Right. Uh, but, you know, Kerrang! at one stage was the biggest selling uh, music magazine in the world. But the self-destruction, the depression, uh, there's a chapter specifically, you, we, you know, there's a horrible uh, uh, abuse that the singer of Lost Prophets was involved in uh, years ago. That chapter is a particularly difficult read. Many chapters, indeed, bits of Ian Winwood's own story and about what happens mm. to his father is a difficult read. It is, it gets dark, but it is very pertinent. It's very timely. It points out that really working musicians to the bone of touring to the point of complete nervous exhaustion is unhealthy and wrong. And it's, it, it's a brilliant book. Yeah, but even as I'm looking at then these, that's your five, four, and three. We still have to get to your top two. But as I'm looking at the the real um, connecting tissue here, it strikes me, I mean, is that the yes, we're hearing stuff about what happened and when they wrote this song and what, mm-hmm. why this song is important and all of those type of things. But it really is if it's not linked into the person's life, it's not that interesting yeah. to read about. It's about it's about storytelling at the end of the day. You know, kind of what makes a great book, I think regardless of the genre, that, you know, sometimes those essential ingredients that, you, mm. that you've just kind of identified about people telling a story remain more or less the same. You know, we don't, even even hardcore music fans really don't want to know too much about what studio Mogwai did the third album in. Even me, <laughs> yeah. and I'm a huge fan, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and what what date the the valve for the particular amp was made in, and why it's still working as in an analog. We leave. Amp. <laughs> that's that's great in the guitar magazines or the geeky yeah, magazines yeah, not, or the, not, or not, certain websites. Yeah, maybe not but for the general yeah, reader. Yeah, yeah. Paper cuts. How it just uh, did I say who the uh, the publisher in the case of Ian Winwood's Bodies, Life and Death and Music, Faber and Faber. Uh, how I destroyed paper cuts. How I destroyed the UK music press and other misadventures. Ted Kessler. This is, now we're going from one extreme to the other and the reason this score is so high for me is literally, sometimes you really need to be entertained. I, it and sounds like I a lot of fun. laughed out loud. Mm. Particularly the chapter starring Bez and Sean Ryder of the Happy Mondays and a press trip to Cuba. Mm. And basically what on and what didn't go on and how it was basically a fiasco in terms of getting good copy. But Ted Kessler's background, he wrote for Enemy during its heyday. So Mm. we were looking at kind of the Mm. early uh, 90s, uh, going to the mid 90s. So covering early Britpop, the Magister uh, uh, music and so on. Later on, became editor of Q magazine for Mm. its final few years before the publishers there pulled the plug. Uh, Little interesting fact. Uh, factoid is his youngest brother is Daniel Kessler of Interpol who's okay. a musician okay. and that's addressed into, in a very very illuminating way And but okay there's the wealth of the war stories there's loads of laugh out uh, loud moments priceless anecdotes all great in- ingredients but this is where I find what uh, Ted Kessler does extremely well rather than becoming as the title suggests how I destroy the UK music by basically saying that it's over he's not jaded he's not cynical Towards the end of the book, he writes incredibly positive and inspiring things for younger writers. And he acknowledges yeah. that it's not necessarily going to be about the enemy anymore, that it's about visual culture, it's about TikTok, it's about all these kind of different things. But um, yeah, a fantastic read. All right. Um, so we get to your top choice, Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan, Faith, Hope and Carnage. I mean, the, 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 Nick Cave's life in the past five or six years has just been... You know, and nobody could cope with what he's had to cope yeah. with. Very difficult stuff. Well, absolutely. And, you know, he's lost not just one, but two sons mm. in the last couple of years. Um, This book is absolutely extraordinary. And look... Why is Sean O'Hagan down here as as a co-author? Sean O'Hagan, the Observer journalist from Armagh, is is a co-author because he steers the conversations. This And they actually, it says quite clearly on, on the back cover, mm. kind of like, this is not a memoir, this is a conversation. And during lockdown... They had these freewheeling, no holds barred, long conversations about life, death, music, everything. About 40 hours on tape. And it was Sean O'Hagan that edits that into what we have here in uh, Faith, Hope and Carnage. I I have a clip of this, but I'm kind of worried about playing it because they're quite stilted in the reading of it. Yeah. Uh I want you to tell me what it's like on the page because that's after all what we're talking about here. You know, do we... Yeah. We just hear the bald question and then the answer to it, you know, almost as if they were put down separately. Yeah. Yeah, Does it read like that on the page? No, it reads... And do you know what? For a book that addresses a lot of grief and bereavement, there's there's laugh out loud loud moments plenty too. Personally, like... I found this kind of like, um, you know, had a tragedy in my family and I find how Nick Cave addresses so, uh, the onset of sudden grief, the physicality of it, be poetic and stunning. And But hasn't he been doing it, that too? Hasn't, haven't people been writing to him and he responds yeah, to yeah. every letter that comes to him, he responds to it in terms of each person telling their story He's, to him and yes, tries to give some kind yes. of advice. And he yes. does it without being patronising. Oh, quite absolutely. Extraordinary. He's kind of got this kind of role of a kind of a, almost a, a grief counsellor in some respects. Yeah. It's an extraordinary book. I recommend this. If you know anybody who's in any way um, interested in Nick Cave and like you're stuck for a Christmas present, this is a great choice. Both the Archbishop of Canterbury and the former Minister of Finance, Pascal Donoghue, who's also a very into, a book enthusiast and bookworm have mm. called this a book of the year. Yeah. I, I have to concur. It is by some distance. All right. Not just my music book of the year, my book of the year. Your book of the year. Okay, well, it's certainly um, on the basis, I know I spoke to Warren Alice around the time of the documentary and the way he spoke about how grief was handled at the making of the, the, the LP, the albums at the time was quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So the book itself addresses all of that and sounds like a, a worthy top choice for 2022. Eamon Sweeney, um, Faith, Hope and Carnage, Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan. And that is published by Picador. Um, I presume you'll be doing lots of reading and listening over the Christmas season. I might get round to reading about Bono.
Maybe. There you go. <laughs> and why not? He deserves, how, deserves to tell his story too, doesn't he? All right, that is our lot for this evening. Um, Leah Murphy and Amandine Passadevine were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Mark Dwyer was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Ola McGowan. Back with you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1.